It's the Brexit Breakdown Podcast from the UK and a changing Europe. Hello and welcome to another Brexit Breakdown Podcast. I'm James Miller, author, journalist, man on a mission to find out more about Brexit. And in this episode, I got to grips with immigration, one of the big issues of Brexit. I was joined by two heavyweight experts in the field from the UK and a changing Europe, Professor Jonathan Portes, once chief economist at various government departments, now senior fellow with UK and a changing Europe, doing a project looking specifically at immigration and its impacts. And we were joined by Charles Clark, former Home Secretary under Tony Blair and a former Education Secretary in the new Labour governments as well. Since losing his parliamentary seat in 2010, he's moved into academia and he also published a plan for immigration at the end of last year, co-authored with his fellow former Home Secretary, Alan Johnson. Uh, when Charles was Home Secretary, his big idea for immigration was ID cards. Remember them? So we spoke about that a bit in this podcast and he's authored a book called The Too Difficult Box about the knotty problems politicians would rather not deal with. So we began by talking about whether Brexit belonged in that box. But before we start, let's just uh, do a couple of bits of housekeeping. We had squeaky chairs in this podcast, okay? The UK and a changing Europe need to get some new chairs. So if you hear weird background noises, it's the squeaky chairs. And I'll be back at the end to sort of sum up. And I recorded the outro not long after we did the recording of the podcast, which was just around Christmas time. So there's a sort of belated Christmas present in the outro. But I've decided to leave it in there because it's good. So stick around right to the end of the podcast to hear what it is. Here we go. Here's a chat starting with the Too Difficult box. I, my, the point of my book, The Too Difficult Box, is it's important to try and solve the problems that are left in The Too Difficult Box, because if you don't, they come up and bite you. To be fair to David Cameron, which not many people are these days, he was trying to solve the Too Difficult Box problem of the European Union by getting a referendum to assure that we stayed inside the European Union rather than not. He gambled his whole premiership on it, he gambled the whole country's future on it, but that was his motivation to get out of the too difficult box which was the European Union. He failed and we can discuss at length why he failed and the uh, from the campaign to the concept to the whole approach and so on. Uh, but I think uh, the idea that you could have left the, the European question inside the too difficult box is not right. Um, I would just, was it that he was trying to sort out our relationship with the <coughs> EU or was he trying to sort out the internal politics of the Tory party? So the same thing. Uh, for many, many years, you might say even right back to 1975, the internal politics of the Conservative Party were riven by divisions about the future of the EU. And it certainly was the case that David Cameron was trying to solve that problem, get it off his agenda. But additionally, not simply the internal politics of the Conservative Party, but the external challenge to the Conservative Party from UKIP, which was uh, mobilising voters, anti-Conservative, threatening Conservative seats up and down the country around this European question. And he felt he needed to get out of that box. That's why he did what he did. 
and he thought that because he'd succeeded in exactly the same strategy in relation to Scotland and having a referendum on Scotland that would put <coughs> the Scottish independence question, uh, keep it in, uh, in its place, uh, that he might be able to do the same on Europe. And in fact, to be fair to him again, I don't want to appear too fair to him in this, uh, wide ranges of opinion believed that the referendum would be won by those saying we should stay inside the European yeah. Union uh, right up until the moment at which it was lost. <coughs> um, but I mean, the accusation would be that he gambled his premiership and the country's future. I don't want to say you know the country is going to go to hell in a handcuff with Brexit, but you know he gambled with what would happen in the future to the whole country in order to solve a party political issue. Because I would suggest that when you were in government, when New Labour were in government. EU wasn't an issue at all. It was entirely a Conservative question. There were some, and there still are some, Labour people who don't want us to be inside the European Union. But after the uh, referendum that Harold Wilson did, remember in the same way as David Cameron, to resolve an internal Labour Party problem around Europe, uh, Labour had fundamentally come to the view that we should stay within the European Union. There were a whole range of different dimensions of that. Uh, something we should join the euro, for example, others not being ready to join the euro, and so on. But fundamentally, you're right. The la for Labour, it wasn't a fundamental question. Though don't forget the issues in 1999, when Tony Blair as Prime Minister was trying to get to a position, which I supported him in, that we should join the euro, and Gordon Brown and his colleagues were opposing that view, and there was the famous five tests and a big economic yeah. analysis that went on and so on, about where we should be. So I don't think it's quite fair to say... Uh, that it was simply a Tory problem. There were big Labour problems also about the EU, uh, the place of the UK in the EU. I mean, never mind the politics, as you just say, that was in 1999, and that's 20 years ago. Mm. Oh my God, that makes you feel old, doesn't it? <laughs> uh, not me, actually. I feel uh, very, I'm very youthful at my current age, and I look back, I, I even remember in 1975, I campaigned against wow. going into the European Union. I spoke at 50 public meetings up and down the country urging, urging a vote no, uh, mainly because of the common agricultural policy and because of some aspects of the way the EU operated. But I came to the decision literally the day after the referendum decided by a two-thirds to one-third majority that we should stay in the EU, that our whole future position should be actively in the EU to do the best out of it, because the story of European integration had been the UK being left behind and not being a voice at the table in key mm. points of the development of the EU, and I thought that was a mistake we should never make. But my actual view in '75 was that we shouldn't be a member. <coughs> I don't want to call it an American phrase, um, you know, blow smoke up your ass. But in 1975, I've never, had, I've never had that done to me before. In 1975, so. how old were you then? I was 25. I was really? president of the National Union of wow. Students, and the NUS had a policy uh, that we should not be, uh, we should not say yes. Interestingly, seeing where young people are today, uh, and there was there was much more tendency. Uh, the kind of view that um, Jeremy Corbyn, as you know, formed his politics about then hasn't changed in, since 1975, <laughs> that the EU was a capitalist club and we shouldn't be part of it. And that informed the uh, NUS view at the time. Well, I think uh, getting out of politics has been good for you in that case. I think, I think, you'd, look, I think you'd look a lot older <laughs> if you'd still be, if you'd stay, kept your seat for the last eight years and had to live through all this. That's um, true. <laughs> Jonathan, um, should we be fair to David Cameron? Uh, well, I, I, I do. I, I mean, I, I agree with Charles um, that, uh, uh, you know, he was trying to solve a problem within the Conservative Party. But I think, you know, 
Um, what changed between um, the mid-2000s when, uh, um, of course, there were arguments about the euro, there are arguments about all sorts of aspects of European policy, but the prospect of us leaving the EU um, was not really on the British political agenda, apart from no. a, a lunatic, what was frankly then regarded as a lunatic fringe. What yeah. changed? And I say that, you know, to, you know, in some sense, it seems to me that there is that, that, that um, the British electorate has always been more split than European electorates about EU membership. There was always a third of the country who, you know, and even back in 1975, a third of the country who thought this was a really bad idea, that Europe, you know, we didn't want to be entangled with all these undemocratic foreigners and their institutions. Uh, and there was always a third of the country that thought, you know, obviously it was a sensible idea. Mm -hmm. um, and then I think there was a third of the country that was sort of in the middle that weighed up on the one hand, what are the real problems with the EU? Well, you know, they don't they don't let us have bendy bananas and uh, um, and, and, and they make us use kilograms and so on. Um, and that's all very irritating. Mm. Um, and then the other hand, single market, travel, um, economic benefits, and the third in the middle sort of wait a second and say, well, okay, it's a bit irritating, but look, you know, seriously, economically, it's clearly a good thing. So what changed in, in you know, the... the, the late 2000s and it seems to me it's pretty obvious that two big things changed over over the last 10, the 10 years before the referendum um, one was uh, uh, free movement yep. and the uh, uh, large uh, um, large levels of, of immigration from the new member states um, and the other and I think this is somewhat under underplayed um, is the EU's or in particular the Eurozone's chronic mishandling of the, uh, uh, the post-financial crisis uh, uh, episode and the Eurozone crisis, which, where it became very much harder for um, people, uh, um, those of us who you know, might be regarded as the sort of economic establishment in the UK, mm -hmm. to point at the, uh, to look at the EU and say, well, this is self-evidently a good thing. These people self-evidently know what they're doing. Because, you know, during the, the 2012, 2013, 2014 period, before we moved on to Brexit, I and many of my fellow economists were uh, uh, of similar inclinations, were sort of jumping up and down saying that what the Eurozone doing is fundamentally stupid, fundamentally self-defeating um, and very damaging to, uh, uh, to, to, to Europe as a whole. Um, and while you can logically say that you know, Eurozone monetary policy and the policy that the uh, uh, EU adopted towards Greece doesn't have ne any necessary direct logical connection to whether or not the UK, a non-Eurozone member, should be a member mm -hmm. of the EU. Um, in real life, it's quite difficult to pull those two things apart. Can I, can I just agree with Jonathan with two qualifications? One big qualification is this is a great world movement of popula populations against mm. their elites. It's not just Brexit, it's also mm. Trump, of which immigration is a massive issue. And I would say myself that the whole globalisation development uh, after the 70 years after the war where we had a shared economic policies, we had shared welfare state, we had shared approach to international institutions, there was a crisis which many people in many countries were able to mobilise and Brexit was one aspect of that. And the only other thing I'd slightly qualify what Jonathan said, I don't myself think that the decision to allow the A8 countries to come into the EU uh, in 1984 uh, was as decisive in the immigration argument as, um, as, as was implied. I think a more serious problem 
uh, certainly for the referendum itself, was migration into the EU across the Mediterranean, which wasn't actually necessarily specifically coming to this country. And the, and the, the I would say, fantasies about Turkey and so on, which were developed, I think that was a bigger argument. Right, buckle up. We're into, into the meat of this now. Okay, so, well, uh, all right, I'll come to you. Well, what do you think of that, Jonathan? Let's, let's, let's respond to that. Uh, the, the idea that immigration into the EU is a bigger issue than immigration into the UK from the EU. Um, I, I mean, I certainly would uh, disagree with what Charles just said. Um, I, you know, I, I think it is very difficult. You know, we had a 52-48 vote. Mm. Uh, that means that in some cases the result was overdetermined. Um, were there two or three percent of people whose vote swung because of Turkey and, and this yeah. view that it was going to join the EU? Uh, uh, probably yes. Were there two to three percent who, who voted because they thought that Eastern Europeans were pushing down um, wages for British workers? Again, probably yes. So in that sense, it's all overdetermined. Um, uh, I, I think it's quite difficult to sort of unpick uh, the uh, the different motivations in that way and to separate out EU and non-EU immigration. What where I would perhaps slightly disagree is that I think you know it is um, attitudes in this country towards immigration are very different from attitudes in the rest of Europe. In the rest of Europe, it's quite clear that uh, that free movement is yeah, no, a third on. or fourth order concern. Just uh, yeah. is there a difference between free movement and immigration? Well, this is the point I'm making. Yeah. Um, in the rest of Europe. They, that distinction is very clearly made. Mm. People in Italy um, are not worried about, yeah. they may be worried a little bit about Romanians, but it's third, fourth, fifth, sixth on their list of concerns. Um, they are very worried about migration from, uh, um, from, from North Africa and the Middle East. Um, in the UK, um, the, we do not um, make that very clear distinction between free movement and non-EU immigration. There are, of course, some people in this country who actually think white Europeans are fine and, and coloured or Islamic foreigners are not. Um, and there are some people in the UK who think, actually, what I'm really worried about is, is wages and therefore I'm worried about polls and I don't have a problem with, uh, with Indians or Nigerians. Um, and then there are lots of people who have a mixture of different views. This is, you know, this is not simple. But there is, a, I think, a clear difference between the UK where it's quite clear that free movement and the movement of people that is from other European countries is more of a concern than it is elsewhere in Europe. So I disagree slightly with Charles on that. Have the Europeans got it right in having that clear division between free movement and immigration? Is our attitude a bit more complicated and therefore harder to argue either with or for or against or, or whatever because we don't really define our terms perhaps like they do? Um, I don't think it's a question of right or wrong. Um, you know, you can make uh, there, there are there are a whole bunch of different economic, social, and political uh, um, uh, uh, aspects to this. Um, but one aspect clearly is that that um, Britons have. It's not to say Britons don't have a European identity. I think we know we're European. Lots of us are quite attached to Europe, and but the strength of uh, of a common European identity, or the idea that there is a a, a, um, a, a common European identity, is clearly stronger um, in most other countries than uh, than it is in the um, in the UK. I actually do very much agree with what Jonathan said about this distinction between different countries and different approaches. It's very striking if you go to Spain or Poland or. Uh, Italy, as Jonathan says, that the way in which it's considered uh, is quite different. <coughs> I also think 
there was a massive untruth that went through the whole of this, um, which has been exposed only shortly before Christmas with the government's immigration white paper. And the massive untruth was that if we left the European Union, if we exited uh, the, the, uh, the freedom of movement in the EU, that the consequence would be a reduction of immigration in a, a reduction of migration into the United Kingdom. Mm. Uh, that was widely believed, it was strongly argued, and I would say it's the single strongest takeout by the Prime Minister, Theresa May, from the referendum, from right through from the very beginning, was that her mandate, as she saw it, was to reduce immigration, mm. uh, and that the way to do that was to stop freedom of movement and leave the European Union. I always thought that was wrong, and we got the proof in Sajid Javid's white paper before Christmas which indicated quite categorically that the effect of leaving the, uh, leaving the European Union with Brexit will not be to reduce immigration into Britain. And to such an extent that people like Lord Green from Migration <coughs> Watch and uh, Nick Timothy, uh, her former political advisor, condemned that, uh, that document as failing to deal with the immigration concerns which they see as a top priority okay. question. So, so here we have an actual disagreement, uh, because I disagree. I do think the impact of the white paper proposals, if they were implemented, and the impact of ending oh, free movement... If. That's a big um, if. Well, well yeah. but the, I think the impact of ending free movement will be a significant reduction in immigration, and that and the white paper says that. So I mean, immigration from the EU or yes. immigration full stop? Immigration full stop. Um, because the, uh, um, I mean, the modelling in the white paper, which I broadly agree with, actually suggests that, that the impact within five years will be a reduction in net migration of between two and four hundred thousand, which is not trivial. Um, there may be some offsetting increase in non-EU migration as a consequence. That will depend on how the proposals are implemented, but. Even if they do go in the, the slightly more liberal direction, I think the net result will still be on uh, a, you know, a, a, um, most plausible projections will be a significant net reduction in migration. We know free movement does lead to more migration. I mean, there, there, there's, there's absolutely no doubt about that. Um, you know, it's true that business pressure, to the extent that business pressure and, and the economics dictate a slightly more liberal approach, that will be mitigated. But I still think you end up with a significant reduction in net migration. Why? Um, well, Just because, because people can't come here? Yeah. Or do people not want to come here after, after Well, the, the I mean, free, free, movement, free movement does both, right? Uh, mm. um, free movement, you know, ending free movement means that we're saying to some people they, they simply can't come here. It also means we're saying to quite a lot of other people you may be able to come here, but you have to. You'll get fewer rights. You have to fill in a lot of forms. You have to pay a. You know, pay. You have to go through the Home Office's bureaucracy. You have Ooh. to pay some money. Uh, your That's employers have to do all all of those things as well. Um, that's why free movement, you know, we have right. empirically a lot of evidence that free movement leads to a large increase in migration. I, I understand Jonathan's point. Yes, yeah, so why do you point. think that it won't be reduced? Because I think, firstly, the fundamental economic factors are very, very strong in terms of looking for work in particular areas. And that's referred mm. to in John, Jonathan's remark about mitigation, so-called, from business and economic pressures. Secondly, I think that the trade policy, which uh, a government outside the EU would pursue, could only agree um, trade deals with America, India, wherever it may happen to be, with agreements from those countries with whom trade deals are done, to allow, if not free movement, but at least a certain set of immigration criteria uh, that would allow people from those countries to come to the EU directly. And that would be a further mitigation 
uh, on whatever was agreed on Brexit. And those are the two big reasons. But uh, I do agree with an important point that Jonathan makes, which is the, as it were, the bureaucracy, the hassle, the problem of um, migrating into the UK other than under other, uh, uh, a freedom of movement basis, filling in the forms and all the rest of it, will be a serious factor, as, which compares with people who otherwise uh, are, are coming through. The one aspect of the uh, white paper that was made, uh, announced in December, which is not clear to me, is this proposal that people from any country in the world in low-skill jobs, so working as baristas or whatever, could come here for one year, but a one-year maximum, and as it were, fill the gap in the EU migration, which is keeping our coffee bars filled. I don't know how that will play out. Jonathan probably has thought about it more than I have, but I don't know how that relationship will play out, because I think there is a labour demand in certain sectors of the economy, which Jonathan's analysed in detail, which has required immigration. And I can completely accept the argument that over a period of time, five years may be too short, but over a particular period of time, we can skill up our own UK employees to do certain jobs in the health service, certain jobs in food manufacturing or whatever. I take that point, but there's a time factor involved. Mm. But I can't, I can't get clear in my mind exactly what the meaning of this, uh, this very short-term low-skill uh, offer in the immigration well, white paper is. Well, well, you can't get it clear, not because you haven't read the white paper, um, but because the government hasn't got it clear yet. I mean, I have read the white paper <laughs> and uh, and it's not clear because it's pretty clear. It was added quite hastily at the last moment as a sop to business and they haven't yet thought through um, how this is going to work. Um, it, I mean, uh, uh, it strikes me as a fundamentally bad idea frankly I mean you you know as well uh, as the holiday job concept isn't well it? I think it's worse than holiday yeah. jobs is it the holiday job concept actually I am you we already have something called the youth mobility yeah. scheme and, and that actually I think is is sort of fine in its own limited terms but this isn't really holiday job this is guest worker schemes that mm. where you people would be able to come for up to 12 months they would have essentially no rights um, and it's I mean it, it really is the frankly, the height of hypocrisy for a government to claim it's restricting free movement um, in large part because of the worries that it might um, depress wages and conditions for, for, for British-born workers, which, um, while I think has been hugely overblown in the debate, you can at least accept that that is a quote, legitimate concern at some level yeah. about immigration yeah. is at least in some sectors and occupations or, or localities, there might be some negative impact on the, 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 the wages and conditions of native workers. But to say that the way you're going to deal with that is to end free movement, but allow um, temporary guest workers who will have not be allowed to bring dependents will have no rights to anything and will clearly be considerably more vulnerable to exploitation, abuse, undercutting, and all the rest of it. It's, it's uh, you know, it, it's, it's completely the, the wrong way of, uh, of addressing the issue. So, uh, you know, as, as Charles says, we really don't know how this will work, but it's, um, it does not seem to me to be a particularly, um, you know, in, in, in a bunch of the occupations where people are most worried, like the care sector, mm. um, or um, semi-skilled jobs in manufacturing, um, it, it's not obvious how this helps. Isn't if anything, quite the opposite. Um, isn't the answer politics? In that, otherwise, I mean, I'm clearly the least expert in this room by a distance, mm. but I'll still blunder in. Um, isn't it that otherwise the immigration policy says Brits, 
you do all the rubbish jobs and we'll ship in high-skilled foreigners to do all the good jobs. And no, that just doesn't seem like an easy no, set. Yeah. Isn't I mean, that what it's saying? What, what, I'm not sure it is saying that, but I mean, what is, what is true, and I've been both an education and skills uh, minister and home mm. secretary, is the trade-off between giving and educating, getting skills for people born, up, born and brought up in this country, and immigration is a very complicated trade-off. And there are significant chunks of the society where the level of skills education is not enough and where it becomes easier for employers to, to, to bring in people from outside the country to immigrate to the country to do certain jobs rather than the lengthy and problematic processes to, to skill people up in the way that's necessary. So if you take the care work sector, which Jonathan just described, it ought in principle to be possible to find jobs in those sectors for people born and brought up in this country, if I can use that phrase, mm. if we provided a proper skills development programme over a period of five years or whatever, to be able to do that. And when I set up, which I did in my white paper of 1975, uh, a big one, 19, 2005, I shouldn't betray my age, uh, the Migration Advisory Committee, the concept of the Migration Advisory Committee was precisely to look at that relationship between skill development and migration to be able to say in certain sectors we've got to really put real resource into training people up and there'll be a period when we haven't got people from this country and so we have to migrate but that period by hypothesis will come to an end uh, when we have succeeded in giving people the skills to do that. It strikes me that in this discussion, I mean this is exactly <coughs> what this podcast is supposed to be, right? having a proper discussion about the issues, all the issues mm. around it and it seems to me, uh, you know, having said all that, I'm going to simplify it because I'm the journalist in the room. Um, we're getting to the sort of fundamentals of Brexit, Brexit, aren't we, again, in that you're suggesting economics will uh, succeed or, or, you know, will triumph and hence uh, immigration will not go down because economics will, will overrule it. And you're suggesting more of the identity. Uh, I'm not, I'm not, I know I'm, I'm putting you in a, I'm sort of trying to squeeze you into a, yeah. uh, into a hole there, but you're, you're suggesting economics is not supreme. Well, I mean, I think we, we, we can all agree economics isn't doesn't determine everything. Otherwise, we wouldn't be where we are. That's the ultimate Brexit uh, argument, isn't it? Uh, was uh, it about but, economics or was it about? But identity? equally, uh, um, Carol's absolutely right. Of course, the economic you can't you know the, um, just because we vote something doesn't change the underlying economics, and the underlying economics forces will will remain what they are. Um, so, uh, um, so, 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 uh, it just suggests yeah. to me that there is you can begin to distill Brexit down to something at its core. It is economics versus identity. I, mean, that's, I don't think that's entirely that right. I mean, obviously, there's a lot of talk about identity politics. I think mm. it's very important. I think there are changes we could have made even within the freedom of movement regime. For example, as other countries have worker registration schemes, I personally put into law an identity card system. This is a case in other, other countries which... Theresa May decided to abolish the day she took office and of course there's many good arguments against an identity card system but identity and economics are very closely interrelated in this discussion and I'm, I, I don't disagree with the way you put the question James I think it's a mm. fair point to, to put the polarity of the two mm. uh, but I think actually it's a question of getting a synthesis of identity and economics which works in a, the right way for the country and the problem about the Brexit debate is it precisely doesn't try and do that I th my, and this may be naive but I believe it's entirely possible with politicians across the range and experts, quotes, unquotes, in a wide range of different ways to find a coherent system that would work well, either within the EU, as I would prefer, or outside the EU to find a system that works. But neither of those is actually happening. We're in a very 
um, uh, polarised debate of various kinds, where people are taking stances uh, which is, are not helping, uh, I won't say rational, you can never say rational in politics, um, <coughs> a, a properly informed discussion about how to find solutions in these circumstances. You brought up identity cards. Um, it's the simple question. Identity cards would have stopped Brexit, right? In my opinion, yes. And there you go. Well, I've finished. And our approach uh, was to have identity cards, which were very controversial. <coughs> and we believe, I'll go back one stage, I believe that the core issue about immigration is not actually people's worries about migrants and racism and so on around those issues. There are, as Jonathan said earlier, a number of concerns in some industries, construction, Polish workers and so on, but it's not fundamentally about that. It's fundamentally about the governance of migration, people feeling that the government wasn't basically controlling, determining who was able to be in this country or not. And then bad things happen, for example, somebody murdered, a police officer murdered by somebody who is here illegally or whatever, mm. and a whole debate steps going. And I believe that identity cards would have been an important contributor. I don't say determinant, by the way. I don't think it was a silver bullet. An important contributor. Oh, I nearly had you to say yeah. that. I nearly yeah. got you to say that. An important contributor to a sense of order about the way in which we governed uh, migration into our society, which would have helped people feel more confident that the country knew what it was doing in those areas. I bet there's people who at the time were all like, oh no, identity cards are really bad, civil liberties and all that. Oh, and now, well, we know what it was, but I bet they now sit and go, well, actually, I'd rather have an identity card than Brexit. Well, there may be, I wish I'd got on board and I wish I'd kept my mouth shut. There's two interesting questions. One is, there's a whole chunk of uh, pro-Europe Remainers who themselves really hate the idea of ID cards mm. because they identify it on civil liberties grounds as the kind of thing they don't want to do. And I could point to literally thousands of them who take that view. My question to them is, think about the potential benefits of ID cards vis-a-vis -vis the EU. And then there's the, the Conservatives on the other side. The Conservative Party was opposed to ID cards originally. I mean, actually, originally it was in favour. Mm. Michael Howard supported it. But then they came against. David Davis was then the Shadow Home Secretary, worked very closely with the civil liberty people in Labour to try and stop our proposals. He got the Tory manifesto commitment in 2010, which Theresa May then immediately dropped it. The interesting question is, does Theresa May, who has a complete story of failure on controlling migration into this country during her period as Home Secretary, does she regret scrapping the ID card system in the way that she did? Would that have given her less of a worry if that ID card system had been in place. It's certainly the case. We would have at least known what the situation was. And in terms of people seeking work who were entitled to be here or not, we'd have been much clearer if we had had an ID card system. Um, let us attempt to turn to the future uh, fairly briefly. Um, Jonathan, where does immigration fit in the debate now? Because there is a, again, I appreciate I'm coming across as a, mm. a, a tabloid idiot or something, but there is a, a, a school of thought which says immigration was a big deal in the Brexit debate and the Brexit vote once Brexit happened everyone went well that's immigration fixed and nobody cares about it anymore and there is polling evidence suggests it's, it's dived down the list of people's concerns right? it has dived down the list of people's concerns nobody's quite sure whether why that is is it because people think that Brexit has fixed it that seems implausible at some level to me um, is it because uh, people have a greater realization you know because people have other things to worry about um is it because people have a greater realization and as charles said there are trade-offs 
in immigration and that you don't simply get to reduce immigration for Come free, on. as well, it were, people are without making... more interested in the nuance of the argument. Well, yes. I mean, I think, you know, to my mind, actually, one of, you know, um, and I would say this is an economist or policy, one of the, the good things about Brexit is that you have people talking about things like um, the single market, trade, immigration, customs union, how they all fit together. Um, and perhaps, uh, maybe this is slightly too, uh, maybe I'm being a bit too optimistic here, but that perhaps people are actually realizing what economists actually grapple with all the time, which is that most of this stuff is about trade-offs. Um, uh, and, and one little bit of Brexit, which has become almost passed in the language, is the idea of cakeism, you yes, know, yes. meaning Boris's idea that you can have everything you want all the time. And perhaps one of the things about Brexit is that people realize that that is not possible. There are trade-offs to be made here, and immigration is, is one dimension of those, uh, those trade-offs. You, you mentioned at the beginning of my book the two difficult blocks, mm. and it's exactly what Jonathan says. There aren't easy solutions, whether you're talking about immigration or climate change or dealing with an ageing society or social care or whatever. And the essence of good politics is to find the trade-offs, the agreements, which, which lead to a sustainable and, and enduring solution for society in those different areas. A good example, which is related to Brexit, but isn't really of Brexit, it was the Good Friday Agreement in Northern Ireland, because that was a whole set of trade-offs where politics came to the fore and mm. found a solution which was stable, yeah. at least to Brexit. Now, we need those kinds of solutions in a whole series of other aspects in our society. And the Me Now Society says, actually, we can have it all in every yeah. dimension. And that's not true. And politics has not been able, in my opinion, to stand out against those people who say we have all that and say, actually, following uh, Jonathan's uh, language, we need to find some trade-off, some agreement, some, uh, some deal, which will mean we get some sustainable solution, which takes account of those desires and also those realities. I, my only pessimistic note, uh, where I don't go all the way with Jonathan, is I'm not confident that the Brexit debate has helped us find <laughs> no, more, uh, more of a way to getting to those solutions. Um, we were talking about right. fundamental earlier. That's the fun that your fundamental problem with democracy is that if somebody stands up and says, "I'll give you the moon on a stick," and somebody else says, "Well, you got to trade off," that's a very that's low, never that's, that's a very low concept of democracy. If democracy is all about true, competing, right? competing mm. moons on a stick, to use your language, yeah. <laughs> that's a very, very dangerous state of affairs. Because actually. I would say that has not been the characteristic of democracy many, many times. Post uh, the Second World War in 1945, there was a whole set of economic settlements, a whole set of welfare state settlements, a whole set of international institutions established, which were saying to avoid this disaster of the 1930s, then leading mm -hmm. to the war, we need to make certain agreements, certain accommodations to build a society which is sustainable. And the true story of today is that 70 years after 1945, those accommodations are crumbling against the assault of the simplists, uh, the moon on a stick politicians like Donald Trump or Nigel Farage. Mm. Um, well, we're talking. Well, how, how do I how do I move on to the next question without sounding like I'm bracketing people who shouldn't be bracketed together? But we've mentioned the role of immigration going forward. Um, what's the role of Tony Blair, your old boss, going forward? You're a, you're a Blairite, right? I'm a very strong supporter of Tony Blair. I'm very very proud to have been in his government. Uh, I think he's very courageously kept open the argument. I think he remains, in many ways, the most articulate exponent of the situation. But, and it's a very big but, uh, I think if a second referendum, if that's what you're talking about, is seen as a rerun of the first referendum, I think that's a disaster and a guarantee for failure in the second referendum. So my advice to my friend Tony 
is not to uh, be so involved in making those arguments now because it's very important that if there were to be a second referendum, it's not simply seen as a rerun of the first. Um, how can I boil that down? You're telling him to shut up. Sorry? You're telling him to shut up. I'm not telling him to shut up. I've got no right to tell him to shut up. He's got to decide what to do himself. Uh, but the, Put it this the, way. The, He's the, maybe not helpful in the debate right now. Is that what you're suggesting? I don't, I, I don't not so much the question of him not being helpful as the argument that we've got to rerun the 2016 referendum is not helpful. But the problem with Tony and Blair is that people don't get to the argument, they just see the man. Well, people have lots of views about Tony. There are many yeah. people, I mean, you, you might be surprised, there are large numbers of people I meet who are very, very supportive of Tony Blair and think he was a great Prime Minister. There are other people who are preoccupied about particular issues, say, for example, the Iraq War. There are other people who think, I wish he was back in, in some way. Um, and I think, actually, his record as Prime Minister stands up extremely strongly by comparison with some of his successors. Uh, so my point isn't pro or anti Tony Blair. Well, my point is pro or anti allowing the next referendum, if there is to be one, to be seen as simply a rerun of the previous run. And I think that's what's dangerous. OK, here's the big question. Um, Jonathan, senior fellow at UK and a Changing mm. Europe, experts in all things mm. Brexit. What's going to happen? Uh, nobody knows anything. No! Oh. <laughs> Uh, no, uh, uh, is there uh, going to be a second referendum? Uh, General election? Does she get her deal through? One of the what's above, you, probably. Your, you must have an inkling. Um, I mean, you know, for what it's worth, um, my feeling is that um, that you know, it seems fairly clear that there is a majority in the House of Commons that does not want a no deal, a chaotic Brexit. And for what it's worth, you know, my view as an economist is that would it, they're quite right not to do so. It would be very damaging. Mm -hmm. um, and ultimately, we are a parliamentary democracy. Uh, um, in fact, in the doctrine, you know, parliamentary is, is sovereign in this country. Um, so if they want to, if they really do want to stop a no deal, they will stop it. Um, right, that's and what's not going to happen. What is going to happen? What is going I'm to happen? Try, I know I'm not going to succeed, but I'm still going to um, try and pin you down on, uh, on um, a prediction. Well, I mean, this, so, that, so that essentially leaves two options. One is that their Theresa May's deal or some version of it is yeah. eventually passed yeah. on the one hand, or um, because there is not time to do anything else, we extend Article 50. Um, and the only way we can extend Article 50 you know, is, is, I think, if... if, if we, in order to find a different approach, which means either a general election or a second referendum. Which uh, is it going to be? If I give you a pound to take down to the bookmakers now, you've mm. got to put a pound on general election, second referendum, Theresa May's deal, or extending Article 50? Which one are you going I to certainly, do? I'm prepared to put a pound on extending Article 50. Okay. I think that's more likely than not. I think you'd have but yeah, you know, where that but but you, you know that doesn't solve the problem. That just kicks the can a bit more. You still then have to have, I think, either a general election or a second referendum okay. in order to decide what the uh, all what, of them. It's entirely possible you send <laughs> Indeed. have a general election. Uh, I, if you look at what Labour's manifesto would be in a general election, I think its most likely manifesto position would be to have a referendum. I don't think its, its manifesto position would be likely to say stay in the European Union. An alternative to the Labour manifesto being have a general election would be to have a new new deal for Brexit based on staying the customs union, staying the single market, leaving common agricultural policy, leaving the common, common fisheries policy. I think Labour's manifesto would be one of those. If Labour were elected in that position, or it wouldn't be elected as an overall government, it would be uh, it would have to be leading um, uh, a coalition yeah, yeah, yeah. government. If it were to be that. 
you would either then have Keir Starmer going off to negotiate in Brussels and say, we want to get this deal on the single market customs union, which might and Brexit on that basis, which interesting enough just before Christmas, then McCluskey for the General Secretary of the Unite Trade Union started asking, arguing in favour of, uh, but the Article 50 would have to be extended to do that, or you'd have the position of going to a second referendum, uh, which I think if Labour were leading the government would then be a choice between uh, leaving the European Union altogether, the, the crash out, or staying in the European Union. I think it's very unclear what the outcome of a referendum would be. People are very sanguine about this from the, on the Romanian side. You know, it's obvious people would come to their senses. Mm. I think when, t- when people are told you've come to your senses, their most likely response is a double visa yes. to those people who've told them that. So I think it's a very complicated situation. But the only thing I, I agree with, John, the only thing I'd take money on is Article 50 deadline being extended. <coughs> All right. Uh, that's enough for predictions. Mm. Let's not... <laughs> mm. <laughs> you only end up looking silly. However... Talking of predictions, that leads us on to the first feature. It's Brexit Family Fortunes. And here is your host, James Miller. Because the UK and Exchanging Europe has a thing called the Brexit Policy Panel, where they ask 100 experts various questions. And uh, I then attempt to get you Mm. to predict what those experts predicted um, in the well I'll tell you what let's go right back to August for the uh, Brexit policy panel in which they asked what is the likelihood that the EU will change their position on the four freedoms how many of the hundred experts thought that the EU will change its position on the four freedoms Charles? very few give me a number oh, yeah. out of a hundred M- maximum ten I think thirty three Really? Two to one, I know, two well, to I one. I would have said ten as well, but uh, I'm, I'm not, in a sense, I'm not surprised at 33, since a large number of allegedly serious people, conservative members of the cabinet, appear to have believed over the last two years that this would happen. All the Brexit secretaries, David Davis, Dominic Raab, uh, Stephen Barclay, all appear to believe there's a serious possibility of the EU changing its position on these things. So I'm not that surprised, that which was, is nonsense. That was from August. The policy panel do change their opinions yeah. quite a bit over time. <laughs> um, Charles, we'll give you the second one. Labour to back a second referendum. How many of the hundred reckon Labour are going to back a second referendum? Now. Yes, this is from the would, November, I, or I the would, most recent. I would uh, say 80%. 60%. Uh, not mm. far out, but mm. that is rocketing up. Yeah. From uh, it was about thirty yeah. percent in yeah. the summer, and uh, I think it's going up, and I think it'll then yeah. come down. A bit. The experts are changing their uh, their minds rapidly on that one, uh, they're, which they're entitled to do, of course. Um, and let's finish with uh, a recommendation: how to understand Brexit. In the unlikely event, this podcast has not enlightened you sufficiently. Charles, what would you recommend? What should I read, watch, look at, listen to? Where should I go to understand Brexit? I think you should subscribe to the UK and EU website and read their publications that are regularly produced on that basis, which I I subscribe to a lot of things, and that's the one I read most, because they have a large number of people who understand lots of dimensions. We've had a strange switch in opinion on this feature. In Series 1, it was all the UK and Changing Europe experts (coughs) recommending their own stuff, Hmm. and then I introduced the rule that you're not allowed to recommend your own stuff. And now we've got the guests <laughs> recommending UK and a changing Europe. So I don't know what that says about UK and a changing Europe or, hmm. uh, or, or the guests or what. Um, Jonathan, can you point us somewhere that's not on the UK and a changing Europe website uh, for understanding the, the basics of Brexit? 
Uh, well, I think um, for you know good analytic content, apart from our website, there are a number of other places that do you know. So for trade policy, um, the UK Trade Policy Observatory mm -hmm. um, is excellent. Um, for understanding the implications for government and Whitehall, the Institute for Government. Okay. Um, and there are, but there are, there are many, many more. Um, I, you know, that slightly simplified. Chris Morris, who does the BBC Reality Check uh, um, uh, website, uh, again, yeah. there's some very, you know, if you just want short, snappy, um, but coherent and correct explanations of specific issues yes. uh, that that that's great I've had that one before that's a second recommendation for the BBC reality mm. check so they go into a, an elite group who've <laughs> had two recommendations that's pretty special so there you go uh, a fascinating discussion with professor Jonathan Porters and former home secretary Charles Clark about immigration you don't get much more expert in the room than that. Charles Clark says ID cards would have stopped Brexit. It's quite a bold claim and basically told Tony Blair to shut up, which is also quite a bold thing to do. Uh, Jonathan Portes accused the government of the height of hypocrisy. Come on, there's some good lines in there. And there was some chat about the moon on a stick as well. Come on, you don't get that anywhere else. Um, if you agree with them or disagree with them, please do get in touch. I am at Political Yeti on Twitter. The UK and a Changing Europe is at UK and EU on Twitter. Or their website is UK and EU.ac.uk. Um, you can email me at UK and a Changing Europe podcasts at gmail.com. And uh, the music again this week has been mainly the music has been the Requiem for a Fish by the Freak Fandank Orchestra. But I've got some special extra music because it's Christmas. We've got a drum kit in the house. So we're going to play out with some special Christmas drums played by my eight-year-old son. Before we hear that, I will just finish up with the um, notices to explain. As ever, this has been the uh, Brexit Breakdown podcast from the UK and a changing Europe. Supported by King's College London and funded and supported by the Economic and Social Research Council. And to end, I say, take it away, Clem. <laughs> <laughs>